Hello everyone, uh, Sława Bogom and welcome to yet another episode of Searching for the Slavic Soul. Uh, the episode, as you can see, uh, well, these who can see me on YouTube can see that today's episode is one of a kind, uh, so far one of a kind, because you can actually see me. <laughs> And I can also see myself while I'm recording it, hence I'm just getting a little bit flustered and speak like an idiot. Let me just... Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not as well. Hopefully it'll get better, fingers crossed. Anyway, um, I thought I'd show my face today as well as some pictures and graphs along the way so you're not bored. Uh, because today it's going to be a long one, the longest episode so far and by far. And the reason why it's going to be so long is because today I want to talk about non-normativity of gender identification and sexual orientation in the context of Slavic tradition. As you can imagine, the topic is not straightforward and not simple or easy because both sexual orientation and gender identification are quite entangled together and despite giving it a good try i could not really split the topic into two episodes in a way that would make any sense hence we have to do a double double episode today we see how it goes but it might even be two hours um, and I forgot, my name is Magda Lewandowska and I'm your flustered Polish presenter of Searching for the Slavic Soul, which is, I hope you remember by now, a podcast, a podcast by Vitya. So, with the introductions out of the way, and if you can stand me today, keep listening. start with a statement that is based on general knowledge about history of the humankind and the statement is that non-normativity with regards to sexual orientation and gender identification and actually any non-normativity in general has been present in pretty much every human culture and civilization since well since as long as we can go back really so in a way one can say that non-normativity is a norm for a hu for the humankind as a species what is not a norm is how the normative people so the heterosexual and how it is nowadays called cisgender people how the majority of the any society treats the non-normative people and this is what I want to talk about today. Not if they were non-normative people among pre-Christian Slavs, because we know they were, and no one can really question that. But what we'll, we'll be discussing today is how our ancestors treated the non-normative people. Because there doesn't seem to be an agreement on that, among not only the practicing modern Rodnovers, but also scholars and researchers in general. 
Uh, I'd like to start with clarifying how our ancestors understood sex and gender and sexual orientation because which is just so unexpected in 21st century that doesn't seem to be a single clear and undisputed definition of sen of gender e and even sex and as I'm told because I am I am not native English speaker as you can obviously say from my mighty Polish accent which apparently is quite cute <laughs> thank you for your nice comments uh, but what I mean is that for me a native Slavic speaker I had to be explain what is the difference between gender and sex so as I am told in English the word gender is used to describe how one feels and the word sex how one looks but apparently not always and not in everyone's opinion uh, because some claim that, ge that gender is a more pol polite word for biological sex so I'm not entirely sure mostly because there isn't such a thing as gender in my, my native Polish or as far as I know in other Slavic languages I mean, there is a word for grammatical gender and this word is rodzaj, well, in Polish, this word is rodzaj, which really just means a type. So you can say that a noun has rodzaj żeński, so female grammatical gender, but the same word rodzaj can be used to say that, I don't know, an apple is rodzaj owocu, so a type of fruit. So. In uh, Polish, and as far as I know, in other Slavic languages, uh, the grammatical gender is not loaded with some underlying sex or gender-related meaning. It's just a word. In my native language, and again, as far as I know, in other Slavic languages too, the concept of the gender of a human being being something different than the biological sex of the same human being is just not there. For me, for like a Slavic person from Poland, it was a completely foreign concept when I first time encountered it. And it's also not a concept that can be easily translated into a Slavic language. And well, it just isn't translated in Polish to talk about gender, uh, kind of the English word gender is used and I think in Russian too, or alternatively gender sometimes is called the cultural sex, so płeć kulturowa, for example, in Polish. So anyway, as you can see, I had to educate myself quite a lot to grasp the concept of gender and gender identification, but it does not make me an expert so if i say something that is wrong or you think it's wrong or i don't know someone finds finds or could find it offensive give me some credit i'm i'm doing my best and if you can let me know about the wrong or offensive detail or whatever i said uh, that'll be great because I'll be able to learn something new and that is always nice. Uh, anyway, back to gender and sex. So, 
nowadays is not entirely clear what's the difference between sex and gender. Uh, many people have different opinions about it, uh, about what's the difference and if there is any. Some claim that sex is gender, uh, some that gender is all made up by the society and that there is only sex. Then there are those who claim that gender can be established basing on some non-anatomical differences like behavior or fMRI patterns and they are also those who say that gender is known only to the person who has it and can only be established by this person and then obviously communicated to everyone else. Some say gender is fluid, some that it's not and there are also, I have not made it up, people who claim that sex, the biological sex, it's all made up and the only thing that is real is gender, but they also don't specify what gender is, so I don't know. So, in order to have some clarity in all I say in this episode, the definitions of gender and sex will be based on a definition that sex is the biological femaleness or maleness, and gender is how one feels. And I want to make it clear that I don't apply these definitions because they are right, but because in order to discuss something and make any comparison, we have got to have some clear starting point. We, we need some definitions, otherwise it will all go muddy and won't make any sense. So, basing on the definition I've just assumed, uh, applied, like define, and with regards to our ancestors, the early medieval pre-Christian Slavs, or actually pretty much all ancestors of the whole humankind, really, because the gender concept was developed only in the second part of the 20th century. Before that, gender was an English word for a grammatical form. And I'm not going to say anything about the grammatical forms because you all know how I love grammatical forms and if I continue this topic we will be here for another two hours or two days. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, in early medieval Europe among pre-Christian Slavs the only femaleness or maleness that was known was the one based on anatomy and biology. Uh, which made it very easy for our ancestors because the human species is characterized by sexual dimorphism, which means that female and male individuals differ significantly in their anatomy. The difference is so consistent that only between 0 0.02 to 0.05% of humans don't have obviously defined sex, so basically don't have an obvious penis or an obvious vagina. So if you want to tell whether an individual is female or male, if you look at the genitalia, you will be accurate in 99.98 to 99.95% of cases. Uh, to put it into perspective, a typical pregnancy test when done at home 
uh, not in a reference laboratory, is accurate in 98.4% of cases. So basically what I'm saying here is that when a child was born in a Slavic village, in the early medieval times, the midwife and mother and pretty much everyone who saw the newborn naked could be even more sure of the newborn's sex than we are nowadays sure of a positive result of a pregnancy test done at home. So, of course, the appearance of the external genitalia is not all. There are medical conditions that are called disorders of sex development, and I'll be calling them DSDs to make it simpler, simpler easier, that can manifest, and DSDs can, DSDs can manifest itself later in life, typically at puberty, but majority of DSDs require advanced model testing to be diagnosed, and obviously our ancestors didn't have such tests, so they they couldn't diagnose majority of DSDs. And as far as I know, the only DSDs that, that are possible to diagnose, or rather from the perspective of medieval people, that are possible to notice are some forms of 5-alpha reductase deficiency, which is the condition that Caster Semenya, the world famous middle distance runner has, and 5-alpha uh, reductase deficiency, it can cause ambiguous appearance of external genitalia and an obvious masculinization of the body during puberty. The problem with 5-alpha reductase deficiency is that it is a very rare genetical condition. It is so rare that its frequency is not even known. There are only few places in the world where it happens more often, and these places are some small areas in Dominican Republic, uh, Papua New Guinea and Turkey, where it seems to be running in families and, well, it's pretty much a result of inbreeding. But Slavs didn't live in Dominican Republic, so, you know, it could have been as well that the genetic mutation responsible for 5-alpha reductase deficiency did not develop in their population and hence they have they had never seen a girl turning into a boy at puberty what we also have to be aware of is that early medieval slavic population wasn't big it couldn't find i couldn't find any numbers exclusively describing the population of early medieval slavs because that because what might be hard to believe for some uh, nationality and ethnicity and race weren't actually a thing in early medieval times so in order to get some numbers I had to work it out from the information I could find about the general population and what I found was that in the it is estimated that in the early medieval period the population of Central Europe was approximately 2.2 millions the population of the Eastern Europe in this period is a little bit more difficult to figure out because the sources are not just not there. So depending on the method of calculation, the numbers seems to be between 3 and 10 million, which is a pretty wide estimate, but 
hey ho, what can I do? Obviously, pre-Christian Slavs were not the only inhabitants of Central and Eastern Europe. So we have to cut down these numbers. So let's assume very, very optimistically that Slavs constituted half of the population. So let's say there were between 2.6 to 6.1 millions of Slavs living in early medieval times in Central and Eastern Europe. And if we take the 0.02 to 0.05% of human babies with ambiguous external genital genitalia, we come to between 1,220 to 3,050 Slavs of ambiguous sex in the whole Central and Eastern Europe. So this is why, in order to keep things a little bit more clear, unless I specify otherwise, in all my discussions today, I will be focusing on millions of obviously sexually dimorphic Slavs who had no doubts whatsoever about theirs and others' biological sex. Obviously, at least according to the theory of gender, which is called a theory, but from a scientific point of view, it is really just a hypothesis, because as far as I know, no one has come up with a way to scientifically test the theory of gender, so it cannot be proven to give any sort of reliable results that can be verified, measured or reproduced in any experimental settings. It can also not be confirmed by abductive reasoning, so by hardcore logic. And in science, if a concept cannot be verified, reproduced, and if it cannot withstand a logical analysis, this concept is not called a theory, but it's called a hypothesis. So a proposed explanation of phenomenon. But again, for the purpose of this podcast, I will be calling the gender hypothesis uh, a theory because this is the name people are most familiar with nowadays. So I don't really want to cause any further confusion. And I really need to stop these digressions because I'll never get to the point. <laughs> so uh, gender theory is a concept developed by and for academics of humanities and social sciences because these academics wanted to describe, analyze and interpret the sociocultural changes that were happening in the second half of the 20th century in the West. The changes I am talking about were the first wave of feminism, so the movement that gave women, women rights to vote, to own a property, to be in charge of their lives, uh, the sexual revolution, accepting homosexuality as a normal sexual orientation instead of, as it was seen before, a mental disorder, the development of queer queer culture and pretty much everything that happened over the last, well, 50, 80 years. Everything that your grandparents call, we didn't have it back in the day. So 
the gender theory started as a proposed explanation of the phenomenon so as a hypothesis but before it could be properly tested and verified it just exploded it became so popular so quickly that it gained a status of science before it actually could be properly tested and the story of gender theory is the best proof that science should be left to scientists so they can properly scientifically test peer review it confirm it or prove that it doesn't work before it has it's handed out to the general public and ends up for ends up on for example on twitter because the problem with the theory of gender is that nobody really knows what it is but everyone has an opinion and is ready to share it with others in a typical cutthroat manner of the modern social media and if you start to work quote unquote on things that you don't understand and you don't want to understand and then you very quickly get to the point where you bully homosexual women to have sex with phenotypical and biological male human being who did not have any surgeries or any other body transformation, hence still has penis and testicles, but claims to be of female gender, so claims to be a lesbian. And the poor girls who are sexually attracted to female genitals and cannot help it because that's the nature of their sexual orientation. These girls are called transphobes because they don't want to have sex with a partner who has 100% natural and 100% unambiguous male genitals. And this is, in my opinion, wrong because no one should ever force bully or manipulate anyone into having sex with anyone this is just wrong thankfully gender theory was not known to our ancestors not only pre-christian but in general to all of them and this is why in this episode i will not consider lesbians with 100% natural penises and testicles and as the reference for describing gender and sexual orientation I will use biological sex which I will define in a scientific way as clearly phenotypically expressed presentation of people with XX so those are women and XY so men chromosomes and that's it (laughs) that's all the explanations and definitions so we can finally start in the last two episodes of searching for the snavic soul i talked about the female and male roles in the society of our ancestors and i explained why there wasn't many of such roles actually it seems that the only time where an appropriate sex and i mean it like in 100 percent biological sense so the only functions that required an appropriate sex was the function of a wife or mother and a husband so a father 
There was also one that I think could have been reserved for old woman, and that was a function of uh, midwife, which could have been called Baba, but that is my guess. My suspicion is not a fact. So for sure, there were two roles that were 100% genderized. The roles of a wife and a husband, or a mother and a father. And every other social function could be taken upon anyone by a person of any sex or gender, as long as this person had necessary skills to take upon and fulfill the responsibility of the function. For example, the role of defending the society from any external attacks could be performed by both women and men. Uh, the same was for agricultural tasks like uh, field work or, I don't know, husbandry of the looking after the farm animals. Uh, we know that in the time of harvest, pretty much every member of the community was required to participate in the field work. Whether they like it or not, they just had to because it was so important for the whole community to gather the harvest. Uh, any sort of craft activities were also taken up by both sexes and all ages. Uh, if you look at the production of linen fabric, for example, the whole community participated at some stage of production. So really those who say that textile production is a woman thing are just crazy because the textile production starts with slashing and burning of forest to have a field. I mean, this is how it started in early, early medieval ages. And then the linen has to be sewed, and after it grows, it has to be harvested. Then you have to soak it for some time to extract the fiber. Then the fiber has to be dried, spun, uh, woven. Uh, I think at some point it also has to be bleached, but I'm not sure when. Maybe before weaving or maybe after. And then there is the final dyeing process, you know, all the decorative things like embroidery. So at each stage of the production of linen fabric, a different group of people contributed. And when you look at the whole process, uh, by the time you have a final product, a linen shirt, for example, pretty much every member of the community had something to do with making it. And this is why these items were believed to have magical properties, because they were the products of all the people, the wearer of the shirt, knew. And that is huge. We, we don't wear clothes of such significance nowadays, pretty much never. While in the times of our ancestors, you know, it was just enough for, for you to put a shirt on, like a linen shirt, and straight away you felt that you belonged and are supported by your community. That's something, huh? And since we're talking about clothes, let's talk about clothes. Because in modern times, clothes are very important part of gender, as I am told. It's so important that a child's preference to wear either trousers or dresses is a factor in determining the child's gender. 
because apparently the trousers and dresses preference is an inherent element of gender or perhaps even sex and you know to a point i can absolutely agree it's much easier for a human with female genitals to pee in a dress or a skirt than it is while wearing trousers and the opposite is true for humans with male genitals but what our culture did is to take the anatomical differences further so because it's not that easy to i don't know fight or ride a horse in a dress therefore as the conclusion went the humans who for anatomical reasons prefer to wear a dress have to be inherently unable to fight and this belief went so deep into our culture that when in 1889 in birka archaeologists excavated a skeleton buried with weapons and a horse they just concluded it has to be a skeleton of a male warrior even though the skeleton's pelvis was obviously female it took over a hundred years and a DNA analysis for the scholars to actually get their heads around the fact that a female is capable of fighting and riding a horse and that she can do all of it while wearing trousers, a loincloth, a tunic, a dress or a skirt or nothing at all or whatever the she wants and it's okay. The fighting and riding a horse and wearing trousers if she wishes to, it does not make her any less female or any more male. She still is who she is. And if we look into the historical written sources of pre-Christian Slavs, we see a similar thing happening. So, during the siege of Dorostolon, both male and female Slavic warriors were defending the fortress, but the Byzantine Chronicles reports that the mixed sex composition of the Slavic army was only discovered after the bodies of the fallen Slavs were inspected. What does it mean? It means that both Slavic women and men stood to the battle wearing the same type of clothing, clothing, which makes total sense because for people like our ancestors who did not have walk-in closets and plenty of disposable income to worry about the looks and newest fashion. For people like our ancestors, where whatever they wore, it had to be primarily functional and useful. And if you look at how strong the sexual dimorphism is in human species, humans don't have to advertise with clothing what sex they are, their body does it for them. So a male human doesn't have to wonder whether the approaching person is a potential rival or a potential mate. He sees it straight away from the way the approaching person looks from the body proportion or even the way of walking. I mean, in like 99 something percent of cases, anyone can really tell apart a woman from a man like straight away. Or I don't know, nowadays apparently we cannot do that because it's transphobia, but 
our ancestors could and were not ashamed of it. So instead of doxing a transphobic lesbian on Twitter, they could focus on real problems like the utility of their clothing, which did not serve them to tell their sex or gender, but was made and worn to protect them. So from protect them from elements, from arrows or I don't know, bees. Their clothing, the way they dressed, had to mostly serve a purpose of whatever they were doing. It wasn't gender specific, it was purpose specific. Another criterion that is nowadays used to tell a child's gender is the child's preference to uh, certain types of play and toys. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot really use this criterion in assessing the pre-Christian slabs uh, because any items that are interpreted as toys that are found in any archaeological excavation sites are subject to the same bias that made a female birka warrior male so you know just because it's just the same story all over again really that the strict black and white not breakable binary binary norms of judeo-christian cultures the norms that tell women what they can do and how they can be and so forth so anyway as archaeologists cannot archaeologists can't really get their head around a female warrior so they cannot comprehend that a male child could actually play with those and this is why any suspected dolls are attributed to girls and any suspected toy swords to boys and nobody really questions it as nobody or not that many questions that a girl who likes to play with i don't know trucks doesn't actually have to be non-normative but she can for example be just a future female truck driver and there is nothing bloody wrong or non-normative with her so as a result of this ingrained bias our modern society see less and less problem with assessing one's gender by identification of male and female preferences hence more and more often children who show interest in typically male clothing or um, types of toys or i don't know interpersonal relationships uh, those children are labeled as male even if they are biologically female and the same identification is happening the other way around so with uh, biologically male children who show interest with female activities clothes or toys and this assessment quote-unquote is done by the same people who claim that sex is a social construct or gender is a social construct or that neither of them is set in stone or that either sex or gender or even both can be fluid and easily reversed which to me to me makes absolutely zero sense because if gender or sex is a social construct why do we use this social construct to label people basing on behavior interpreted through the lens of the very same social construct like you know if something doesn't matter it doesn't matter 
and should not be used as a lens or a label or a criterion of an assessment. But again, that is my opinion. It could be as well that I am too dumb to actually comprehend the depth of logic applied here. But if I am, in fact, too dumb, we have a big problem here because the convoluted logic starts to affect me as a woman. Uh, it starts to affect, it, affect my daughter who is currently becoming a woman and pretty much every woman, cis woman out there because this logic is ruthless towards women and it tells us, women, that we can't be what we want to be without turning into men. For example, as I've recently learned out, 200% biological with regards to sex and gender female historical figures following this convoluted logic, they were branded as male uh, just because they pretended to be men in order to take control over their lives and achieve the, their dreams. These two amazing women are Margaret Bowley and Val Valerie Arkell Smith. They were both British, they both lived in the 19th century, so in the time and place where women had no rights to education, no rights to own private property, no right to make and make any decisions regarding their own life and these two women wanted these rights so in order to get them they posed as men and this is why now retrospectively they were both labeled as trans men even though what is obvious after reading the written sources documenting their lives they both were women identified as women and pretended to be men because that was the only way they could achieve what they wanted to achieve in life. But according to the modern logic, determination, ambition, greed, bravery, as well as wearing trousers and being in control of own life is 100% male and cannot be done by anyone but men it's just so bloody wrong, so wrong, you know, to take a life of someone who's long dead, someone who obviously cannot speak for themselves, cannot object, explain or rectify anything and just rip out the identity of this person and replace it with something that fits better according to some modern hypothesis or theory. That's like spitting onto this person's grave, you know? It's so disrespectful. So, you know, by all means, you identify yourself as whoever or whatever you want, but do not, let me repeat, do not walk around identifying others. Because if you look at, for example, my life, as far as modern, so really, Judeo-Christian gender roles go, I could be easily identified as a man. I prefer to wear trousers. I barely wear men any makeup. I'm the sole provider for my whole family. I am in charge of my family's finances. I make all the decisions affecting the life and the future of my family. I am the owner of my family home. 
I prefer science over art, ideas over people, relationships between things over relationships between people, which is why, among other things, studied physiology and anatomy, not psychology or sociology. I don't cook, I don't have a husband, and, and never will have a husband, and now, thanks to the blessing of modern medicine, I don't even menstruate. If you took all of that through, if you look at all of that through the lens of the gender logic, I am a man, but I cannot. I'm a woman. And thanks to the fight of generations of my female ancestors, I have, I finally have the right to do with my life and in my life whatever I want. And none of it makes me any less of a woman. But saying that, there is one thing that would make me a man. And this thing, this absolutely despicable act, would be raping someone with my own 100% biological and natural penis. If I did that, if I pulled out my own natural penis and raped someone, that would make me a man. But I am not able to do that. And what more, in the whole history of the humankind, there has never been a woman who was able to do that. Yet, strangely, this 100% accurate criterion of assessing gender is not used as a criterion of assessing gender. And I honestly don't know why. Because if wearing trousers or fighting with a sword makes a person a man, then raping someone with 100% natural biological penis should, surely should make the rapist be a man too. But according to the gender theory, it doesn't. And I really can't comprehend why. So, as I was saying, I'm all for self-identification. You identify yourself as whoever you want. By all means, as long as you don't hurt people, you do you and let others do and be what they are. Again, as long as they don't hurt anyone. But after you self-identify yourself, that's it. This is where you, your gender identifying powers end. Stay away from gender identifying others and particularly from gender identifying dead people unless you can actually talk to them and ask them who they were or how they identified themselves but if you cannot do that, don't do it. And I'm just going to say one more thing here. Um, Slavic traditions, Slavic tradition and the history of Slavs is full of brave, strong and capable women women who acted as they found fit in order to achieve what they wanted, despite being 100% under any respect female. Because women can be strong, decisive, capable and brave, they can also wear trousers and carry weapons and none of this makes them men. And I'm just going to promise here that if anyone ever decides to make our ancestress the independent and brave Slavic girls and women 
into boy or man, they have to do it over my dead cold body. I, I won't have that. But let's go back to the topic uh, to the topic to the pre-Christian Slavs and their opinion of non-normativity. So first of all, we have got to be aware that the norm was completely different for our ancestors. What was normal to them, like child labor, teenage marriages and pregnancies, corporal punishment, uh, infanticides, slaughtering of Christians on the altars of the gods. That was all normal in the times of our ancestors and obviously would be far from normal nowadays. Child labor, for example, it was completely natural and normal not only for early medieval Slavs, but pretty much for all humanity until relatively not that long ago. Actually, in many parts of the world, child labor is as normal as having a home-cooked dinner. Children as young as five years, uh, they uh, are and they were being used as workforce particularly in societies based on agriculture, which, as we know, were the characteristic of the societies of pre-Christian Slavs. At the same time, we know from long-term studies of non-normative, which, let me remind you, here means non-heterosexual and gender non-normative individuals, uh, we know that such individuals show their non-normativity from a very early age. So. Nowadays, if a child is persistently gender non-conforming, so for example, plays with toys typical, quote unquote, for the opposite sex, or prefers dressing like the opposite sex, or even claims to be of the opposite sex, such gender non-conforming child statistically is much more likely to grow up into a person of non-heterosexual orientation or less commonly into a transgender person. So this is how we can recognize young non-normative people nowadays. But in the times of our ancestors, children didn't have much opportunities to show their gender non-conformity because, uh, well, firstly, because they worked so they didn't go to preschool, didn't have lots of toys or time to play or a wide choice of peer groups to join. There wasn't ballet lesson or football clubs or I don't know, cooking classes. I know, is anyone make cookie classes for children? There was work to do and grown-ups to listen to and that's what, all it was. And if a child was lazy and didn't want to work, this child was suspected to be under some sort of demonic influence or suspected to be a changeling of a jivojona, for example, and was put on a heap of manure and hit with sticks. And after that, the lazy child got cured from laziness and could get back to work for the benefit of the family and community in general. So, as we see, the ch children of our ancestors had completely different childhood experience than we, the modern people, have. 
And the difference in the expectations and the role of a child made it very difficult, if not impossible, to express any gender non-conforming behaviors or preferences. So if we take this into consideration, it suddenly becomes quite obvious that the position of non-normative people in the communities of our ancestors wasn't as obvious as it might seem. Because in the society of our ancestors, the non-normative children who, as we know, are more likely to grow up into non-normative adults, they did not have a chance to be recognized as non-normative, hence had more time to grow up and figure things out on their own and present or come out in their community after they figured it out without any pressure to confirm to any gender roles. And now, in order to illustrate how it worked, I'm going to propose a thought and experiment that hopefully would let us all, all better understand how things worked back then. So, imagine that you are a teenage homosexual boy in a village of early medieval pre-Christian Slavs. So far, your whole life was exactly as the life of any other child. You wore the same clothes as, you other, as the other children, uh, so a linen tunic, in the winter a sheepskin coat, and in the summer you just ran around naked like every other child. You performed the same work like other children, so basically you did what you could do. If you were strong enough, you ca carried water from the river or firewood from the forest. And if you were not that strong, perhaps you were told to steer the supper or, I don't know, sweep the floors. If you were skilled in using a sling or a bow, an arrow, you could have been sent to the pastures to watch the sheep or goats or, I don't know, cows or whatever they had on the, out on the pastures. Uh, the only element of your childhood that could potentially be problematic for a gender non-conforming boy, such as yourself, would be an initiation ritual called postrzyżyny. Postrzyżyny, which was the first haircut, was performed on boys of 7 to 10 years of age. Uh, it was a ritual of coming of age, as well as a formal expression of accepting the boy to the to be the son of his father. The girl version of postrzyżyny was called zapleciny, which literally means the plaiting, plaiting of her. Zapleciny was performed by either the girl's mother or one of the oldest or a few of the oldest women in the community. It most probably took place closer to the first menstruation, so in a girl's older than seven, 10 years of age and that is pretty much everything we know about Zapleciny which sadly is not surprising given how sexist the academia has always been but because we don't actually know much about the girl initiation it's really difficult to say how problematic would be such genderization uh, of initiation rituals for a gender non-conforming child. The difference in timing could have as well made it something that you, 
uh, as a gender non-conforming boy want to have the postrzyżyny because at your age it was the only available ritual of initiation and accepting you into your family or the community in general because you know the girl version the zaplecine wasn't done on your peers but on older children so girls had to wait for the initiation and boys had it sooner and we know that children don't have a lot of patience so it's possible that for you a homosexual man in the making the belonging and acceptance part of postrzyżyny trumped the gender aspect of this ritual but still however it was your postrzyżyny was pretty much the only genderized aspect of your childhood uh, every everything else every other aspect of your growing up uh, was 100 percent unisex so for every pre-christian slavic child regardless of sex or gender their childhood just sucked equally they <laughs> They had to work and wear whatever was available instead of what they wanted and they did not have a lot of space or opportunities to express who they are and how they want to present or be seen. So uh, after Postrzyżyny, you, the homosexual Slavic boy, uh, grew up, continued growing up and as you reached puberty you were entrusted with tasks that require more and more strength, speed and endurance. And the reason why you were entrusted with such tasks is because after puberty, your body was producing more and more androgens, so uh, male hormones that, such as testosterone. And these hormones, they made you stronger, faster and physically tougher and less and less girls could match, actually match your strength, speed and endurance because girls, with the exception of girls affected by some of many DSDs do not and never had much testosterone in their bodies and if you don't believe me when I say what a huge difference androgens do please visit our website called boysvswoman.com so this is boys vs woman all one word dot com and there you will find comparison of results of athletic competitions for teenage boys and grown-up elite female athletes such as female olympians and this comparison is actually quite scary and quite an eye-opener because uh, if you compare the fastest times of female Olympic level runners, it turns out that some of those amazing, strong and fast women could not even qualify into the first 10 of the fastest runners in a high school sport event where the teenage boys compete. So gender conforming or not, as a teenage early medieval boy, you had testosterone in your body and the testosterone made you stronger and faster and that allowed you to perform tasks that require physical strength and endurance like for example cutting down trees or building houses or going on long hunting trips and you know it's quite possible you resented it <laughs> it's quite possible you prefer to stay at home and I don't know weave 
or cook. Uh, it's quite possible that you male peers also were fed up with working hard and preferred to stay at home, but nobody lets you do it because weaving or cooking was done by people who for various reasons could not physically exert themselves like pregnant women or nursing women or old women. You were not one of those people. So whether you liked it or not, you and your strong and fast male peers had to do the hard work and none of it had anything to do with your gender. It was all about your physical abilities and responsibilities towards the community. There were jobs to do, some of them were harder and you could do the harder, so you did it, full stop. As to your hardworking peers, it isn't impossible, although for sure, sure it didn't happen often that in your village there was an exceptionally strong cis girl or a girl with, for example, one of the types of, you know, five alpha reductase deficiency, so one whose body can naturally produce testosterone. But overall, your hardworking peer group, for certain, was mostly male. So at the time of hitting puberty, when teenagers typically start their first sexual experimentation, you were surrounded by boys to whom, or to some of whom, you felt sexually attracted. And most of these boys were also feeling sexual attraction but to girls. And now, if you look at studies of human sexuality, you learn that approximately 10% of people have had some sort of non-heterosexual experiences. And out of these 10% of people, around three, 30 to 60% after the non-heterosexual sexual experience remain faithful, to non-heterosexual sexual orientation. The non-heterosexual orientation will be the homo and bisexual, hence um, nowadays scientists talk about non-heterosexual orientation rather than having to talk about and discuss homosexual and bisexual orientation separately because contrary to what some people believe and claim, Human sexual orientation is not always stable and unchanged throughout the whole life of a person. The fluidity of sexual orientation, particularly among non-heterosexual people, is a well-known and researched phenomenon. And as and I am going to mention this here because it will be important later in the episode. Uh, so the phenomenon of fluidity of sexual orientation and is particularly often observed among non-heterosexual women. But uh, if we apply the modern studies into human sexuality to your, your, the early medieval teenage homosexual boy that you are imagining to be, to your situation, it turns out that you had one in 10 chance that among your hardworking peers, there was one boy who was open to non-heterosexual sexual 
experimentation. However, in nine out of 10 cases, you had to watch your peers, perhaps even those who you had a crush on, you had to watch them hooking up with girls. Girls who, it must be said, were most likely happy and willing to pursue sexual experimentations because according to medieval historian, uh, a medieval historian Al-Bakri, pre-Christian Slavs did not see virginity or lack of any sexual experience as a female virtue. As it was written by Al-Bakri, if a Slavic bride was discovered during the wedding night not to have any previous sexual experiences, she was rejected as a wife because it was believed that she did not that if she did not manage to find any lovers before finding a husband, she must have been lacking some important assets. <laughs> so, as a budding homosexual slav, you were quite likely suffering an emotional turmoil. You had to work hard all the day long, and after you, you know, finished cutting down those trees, uh, to add insult to an injury, you had to watch, uh, or you were told or, or overheard, because you know, in your pre-Christian Slavic village, everyone knew everything about everyone. So, and the gossip were like the pivot of the daily entertainment. So you either watched or you were told, or you overheard that your crushes, the boys you were in love with, in love in, were hooking up with girls uh, eager to discover their assets. So, what did you do? <laughs> well, in nine out of 10 cases, it's actually hard to say. Perhaps you decided to stay in your village and lived in celibacy until you found a willing partner. Perhaps you left the village and find luck somewhere else. Um, we do know that population of some of early medieval Slavic settlements actually, you know, was like going into thousands of people. Uh, obviously, a larger number of people increased their chances of finding a partner open to non-heterosexual experiences. So, you know, going to a larger settlement settlement could be a good idea. And leaving your village to explore the world is something that Slavs did routinely, actually. Uh, you know, this is how they end up spreading among the majority of the early medieval Europe. So in nine out of 10 cases, you could just go traveling without having to expose your sexual orientation to anyone until you were ready. But there is still the one out of 10 chance, right? The one out of 10 boys who was who would be open to non-heterosexual non experimentation. So let's imagine that you hit a jackpot uh, and ended up growing up in an early medieval village with another Slavic boy who not only was open to have sex with a member of the same sex, but also, also who liked you enough to want to have sex with you. And now we don't actually have many or really any sources to help us to investigate such jackpot option. The only mentions of non-heterosexual people in that context 
of pre-Christian early medieval Slavs are sermons written down by Christian monks, priests, uh, and or you know priests in medieval psalters. I hope this is how you say it. So well, in praying books, <laughs> of course, in these sermons, the non-heterosexual sex is forbidden and presented presented as the devil's work. But such were any extramarital sexual practices. Besides, you know, wherever and whenever you look in the history of Christianity, the monks and the priests have always been preaching against any extramarital form of sex, you know, hetero or non-heterosexual. So even though uh, the sermons kind of indicate that there were non-heterosexual people living openly among pagan Slavs uh, because if they were not there wouldn't there would be no reason to preach against them but still it's not that specific argument and it can be easily rejected as such so without any historical or archaeological or pretty much any other sources we have to start making educated guesses and if you look at the modern economic analysis of the effects of homophobia or general you know lgbtq phobia on the societies it becomes very clear very quickly that there is a huge economic cost to rejecting non-normative members of the society Obviously, in modern analysis, many of the cost is related to losses of income in tourism industry or the cost of healthcare. So costs that cannot really be applied to an early medieval society. But some of the costs listed and calculated do actually apply. Such costs are the loss of life or loss of uh, work productivity, which are very significant in modern times. And there can be no doubt that they were very significant, if not more significant in early medieval ages. Because uh, you, the early medieval homosexual Slav, before coming out you had already proven to be a valuable member of the society after all you were working as hard as everyone else you were cutting down those trees and building those houses and hunting down these animals you know feeding the whole village and who knows maybe you had already managed to successfully participate in defending of your village against some threats like you know invaders so you had already proven your worth and rejecting you would mean a big loss of for a big loss for your community and if there is anything that slavs don't like <laughs> he's losing in order to get ahead in life our ancestors happily and willingly cooperated with demons of which are I talked in the 11th episode of Searching of the Slavic Soul. Uh, they had sex with demons and they even had children with demons. One of such child was Wolch Wsiesławiewicz, who was the son of Marfa Wsiesławiewna and a Zmi or Zmei, so a Slavic dragon. 
and the adventures of the son of dragon, so half demon, so Volk Siesławiewicz, are presented in Beliny, which are old Russian epic poems, and everyone agrees that Beliny can Beliny can be dated to pre-Christian, perhaps even ancient period in the history of the Slavs. Uh, a part of demons, our ancestors were perfectly happy to interact with people of other religions, uh, speaking other languages and having different skin color. So it is really, really, really hard to believe that your Slavic early medieval community, community of people living in the times where every single thing, like literally everything from houses to mugs was done by hand, it's real hard to believe that they would reject you just because your hands, a part of working hard to produce handmade stuff, were also squeezing the bum of the wrong sex. I mean, of course, my reasoning could be wrong, but I really doubt it. Um, I'm sure you, the homosexual teenage early medieval Slav, would be absolutely fine after your jackpot coming out. Uh, I also would like to stop for a while to explore the situation of non-heterosexual women in the society of our ancestors. Uh, I mean, it doesn't seem that this situation differed greatly from the situation of male Slavs, but nobody ever talks about girls and women anyway. And nowadays, uh, you know, when even mentioning something is binary is seen as crime. No one talks about girls and women full stop. The marginalization of cis females is so bad that no one even tests safety of seat belts for female drivers. And I am not making it up if, and that's a big if, if a car is safety tested with a female crash dummy, the dummy is seated in the passenger seat, not in the driver's seat. So nobody really knows what type of safety do seat belts provide for a cis female driver, which results in horrendous injuries to female drivers. And uh, if an accident happens, I mean, statistically, cis female drivers get involved into accidents much less often than cis male drivers, but if they do, their injuries are much more severe. And what's really, really scary, no one cares. So I want to talk about girls and women because in case you don't realize, cis females are roughly half of the humanity. So even though we, the girls and women, are considered to be some sort of minority, we are so fucking not. And we were not in the early medieval times. And by the look of it, if we were non-heteronormative, we actually could have had it easier, statistically, <laughs> that non, that, uh, than our male non-normative counterparts. Because our, the, the female sexuality is different than male sexuality. Uh, no one really knows why, but it is. We, the girls and women, we love differently. We build relationships differently. 
And also, if we are non-heterosexual, we are statistically more likely to be bisexual and not strictly, strictly homosexual. And that means that if we were to run a thought experiment with you imagining to be a homosexual early medieval teenage Slavic girl, it would have been uh, much easier for you to express your gender non-normativity by for example, joining boys in the cutting trees enterprise. I mean, physically, you would not have been able to match the strength of the boys, but it is actually unlikely that anyone would have prevented you from trying uh, because the, the jobs of boys and men were the hard, physical, intensive labor jobs. So, you know, if you wanted to try it, I bet you would have been most welcome to do the hard stuff also statistically it would have been easier for you to follow the normal heterosexual path because statistically you would have been more likely to be on the bisexual not strictly homosexual side of uh, the spectrum of human sexual orientation so statistically it would not only be possible for you to experiment sexually with boys but again, statistically, you would have a bigger chance to, of becoming a wife of a man whose another wife is open to non-heterosexual sexual encounters. Also, because in order to follow the normal path of socialization as a girl, you would not have to get rich before getting married because as I explained in the episode 6 of Searching for the Slavic Soul, in Slavic tradition it was men who had to present the future wife with a valuable wedding gift. The girls were not required to do so. So, as a Slavic female homosexual, if you happened to find a married woman open to non-heterosexual sexual relationships, all you had to do uh, was to... All you had to do to start living with this woman was to instruct her husband which wreath to pull out of the river during the Kupawa celebration. And that's it. Well, you know, not entirely it, because in order to stay married to your husband, you would have to have an occasional heterosexual sex with your husband in order to give birth to his babies, because that was your job as a wife. But still, statistically, it would have been more likely for you to be happy with this option uh, than if you were, you know, a non-heterosexual man, uh, because non-heterosexual men tend to be more exclusively homosexual and non-heterosexual women tend to be more on the bisexual orientation. So, statistically, it would have been easier for you to fit into the heterosexual norm. Um, so that was the sexual orientation, uh, non-normativity. Uh, let's do the gender identification, non-normativity. And uh, believe it or not, there's actually some decent sources on this topic in the context of pre-Christian Slavs. Although these sources mostly relate to the trans sex, rather the transgender aspect of being gender non-normative which I guess is a result of Slavs not having a slightest clue about what gender is, which is what I explained at the very beginning. 
So in the sources regarding early medieval pre-Christian Slavs, and most of the sources are either folklore or epic poems, all passed um, uh, as oral tradition in one of many of Slavic languages and none of Slavic languages, as I mentioned before, as far as I know, none of Slavic languages has a word for gender, let alone a concept of gender. And this is why in Slavic culture and tradition, everything related to being a grown-up female or male is just related to sex. And not like sex sexual like encounter, but sex as in biological sex. So anyway, what I'm trying to say here is that in this case, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, so the uh, hypothesis of linguistic relativity, applies like 100%. Uh, for those who listen to the 10th episode of this podcast, you already know what the linguistic relativ relativity is. And if you haven't, do listen to the 10th episode. Uh, for now, I'm just going to say that linguistic relativity is a hypothesis that states that the language shapes or you know influences the language speaker point of view. And although the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is not really um, widely recognized one, in this case it absolutely does apply because, well, there are sources about sex change in the Slavic tradition, but because of lack of word or even a concept of gender, there is no sources mentioning gender change. So. If you are one of the gender non-conforming people who don't believe in biological sex and who believe that in order to become a woman you just have to say you are a woman, I'd say it might be better for you not to listen to the rest of this episode because you might find it triggering. But if you in your gender change journey, if you have done or are planning to do some sort of body transformation designed to look like the opposite sex, then I think you should be okay. I mean, if you're not, again, it is not my intention to offend you in any way. The, 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 the intention, the, the purpose of this podcast is to find the authentic Slavic tradition to dig it out from under all the foreign non-Slavic influences. So, uh, you know, I really have to stay true to Slavic language, which, which is an integral part of the Slavic tradition and gender, the feeling as the opposite sex without looking at the op as, as the opposite sex. Gender is just not present in Slavic languages. There isn't and never has been a Slavic word to describe feeling of being of a male or female sex. Slavic words can only describe being of a male or female sex. So that was the trigger warning and also the explanation why I am talking about what I am talking about. And what I am going to be talking about uh, is changing biological sex in the Slavic tradition, which is absolutely possible. And uh, what is, as I personally think, is absolutely beautiful, uh, it's done with the help of the rainbow. 
because our ancestors believed that the rainbow, the one that you see on the you know, sky after a storm, is actually a manifestation of a Slavic dragon called Zmi or Zmei. I will call he, this dragon Zmi because it is a Polish way of calling him. <laughs> him, I said him because in, in Polish and I think in Russian too, both Zmi and dragon both Zmi and dragon are of male grammatical gender so in a sentence the right pronoun for a Zmi or a or a dragon would be him his pronoun because Zmi is a grammatical masculine gender because this is how genderized Slavic languages are and still anyway dragons uh, Slavic dragon, which I will be calling Zmi, although in, in literature you can find the name Zmei too. So Zmi could be seen as a rainbow and also he was, it was, <laughs> Zmi was a sort of a bridge between the world of the living and the world of the dead. And when a Zmi drank, drank, when a Zmi drank water fro from for example, from a lake, this water was sort of magically changed by having contact with the Zmi and through the Zmi with, with the world of the dead. Uh, and the magically transformed water could also magically transform other things. So if, I, um, if a human drank from the same lake uh, from which a Zmi previously had drunk, through the water, the human would experience a magical transformation. Uh, sometimes this transformation would be gaining magic, magical powers, like becoming a sorcerer or a shapeshifter. But sometimes this magical transformation um, would be transforming into the opposite sex. So, if pre-Christian Slav wanted to be the opposite sex, all he or she had to do was to find a lake from which a Zmi drank, drank water. So, <laughs> so, one where rainbow would end or be begin, depends on how you look at it, and then uh, drink the water from this lake. And that would give... Um, the Slav one out of three chances of becoming the opposite sex. Uh, I said one out of three chances because it is actually not clear how controlled the transformation was. So, so how much was it influenced by the will of the human who drank the water? It could have been a sheer luck, you know, you, you either become a sorcerer or shapeshifter or you change sex, like, you know, like tossing a coin. Or it could have been, you know, depending on what the Slav wanted or maybe what the Slav's dollar wanted. It's, it's hard to say, but, you know, changing sex was one of the options. Uh, there also was some folk, folk tales that didn't mention drinking the water, but mention being swallowed by Ajmi or having your blood like sucked out or drunk by Ajmi. If one was swallowed by Ajmi, then this person would be transported like within the body of Ajmi, transported to Navia, so the world of the dead, and the transformation would happen there in Navia. 
And after the transformation, the person would return to the world of the li living with, you know, either new magical powers or a new body of the opposite sex than before. And it's important to stress here that the sex change in Slavic tradition is like a full body change. Because in Slavic tradition, there doesn't seem to be such a thing as uh, being born in the wrong body. Uh, you know, when you are born as a Slav, you are being given the body you have, and that is it. Even if the body does not, you know, work as you want it to, it is still the only body you are ever going to get in your time among the living. So because it is the only body you are going to get, it cannot be a right or wrong one. It's just the body you have and that's it. Uh, you, you might be born with it with, with a wrong or inappropriate dola, which is uh, dola is kind of a protective spirit I talked about in the episode number nine. So if you don't like uh, the dola you have, you can change it, but you cannot really change your body because the body you enter the world of the living, you have got to exit it the world of the living as well that's the only body you have from between being born and being dead uh, this is why for example cremation was by far the most common funeral rite among the slavs because the body you were born you know is like the a part of you integral part of you and the body if the body is not turned to ashes you cannot really leave the world of the living Hence, the sex change also required contact with Navia, so with the Slavic word of the dead. The contact with Navia was either through the water of the water that Zmi drank or through the Zmi itself, but there had to be an element of dying before you could, could get a different body. So what does it mean? Well, it, it means that the only transgender identification that it that is let's call it included in the slavic tradition is a trans identification that includes transformation of the body and from the and from the perspective of slavic tradition a form of trans identification that does not include any body transformation is not really a sex change but i don't know a change of mind i suppose and, and there is one thing that I have to mention here, all this Zmi transformation, the kind of transformation, like contact with Zmi, all this Zmi transformation, it was part of the Slavic folklore as a warning. So our ancestors were scared of, you know, Zmi induced changes. They didn't want it and they on they warned others to you know stay away from a lake that a jmi drank water from or uh, hide indoors when a rainbow was visible on the sky and and you know this kind of warning nature of the jmi related folklore is the reason why some modern <laughs> rainbow phobic road novels claim that there is no place for transgender people in the slavic tradition these no road novels, they say that our ancestors were scared of Zmi-induced sex change and therefore we should be scared of it too and we should reject the trans people too. 
But the truth is that all the people that were changed by having a contact with a Zhmi, all the sorcerers, shapeshifters, or the sex change people, they were all able to function without any major issues within the society of our ancestors. I mean, the medieval chronicles are full of stories of sorcerers doing this and shapeshifters doing that and, you know, this and that. It was all the helpful stuff, uh, you know, the stuff that was helping the society and it was accepted within the society. What more, there was also a very special group of people who by their very nature could have perfectly safe contact with Zhmi Rainbow and they were seen as helpful too. These people were called Chmurnicy, Obocznicy or Planetnicy and they were men who had the power of controlling weather. And in order to do that, they used Zhmi, so the Slavic dragons, to get to the sky and, for example, fight off a storm or push the storm away from the uh, away from the fields or the village so you know all for all of these for the benefit of the community and you know Chmurniks were like super respected despite having a regular contacts with the rainbow uh, so i think that the rainbow phobic rodnovers should really chill out and read some before they start to reject members of community who through their unique talents and abilities could actually be super useful for the Rodnoveri community. Also, what I forgot to mention is that a part of the trans humans, our ancestors also knew trans demons, which is just so super cool. There was one demon that was called Misienchnik, which literally means a the monthly one. And uh, one could recognize this demon uh, by its regular sex change uh, that was taking place on a monthly basis. So every full moon, the body of Miesięcznik would change from male to female or the other way around. And the most cool thing about Miesięcznik is that um, a part of, you know, being continuously transitioning on a monthly basis under every other respect, the Miesięcznik was uh, able to like function 100% normally within the community or their, of their village or settlement. Uh, you know, no problems, you know, they were fully included, fully functional, accepted and helpful members of the Slavic community despite being trans, demons, on a monthly basis. And this is why I am convinced and 100% sure that the attitude of our ancestors toward any trans person was exactly as it was toward any other creatures of being or being supernatural or not, just purely utilitarian. So, so if a trans person was helpful and contributed to the society in a positive way, such person was seen as helpful and accepted as a valuable individual. I mean, of course, there was an element of fear because trans people were different and, you know, potentially could have supernatural powers, but come on, so were demons. And our ancestors happily and willingly 
cooperate with demons so I'm pretty sure they were more than happy to cooperate with a helpful trans person and uh, that was all I had to say about trans people um, but I do want to in the spirit of inclusion very briefly also mention the 0 0.2 0.02 to 0.05% minority of people who are nowadays called intersex so people who are not in the way their body look clearly male or male or female because you know there is no reason to suspect that such people were not every now and then born among pre-christian slavs uh, i am pretty sure they were born although they were not ma very many of them as i cal calculated before at the beginning of the episode statistically they could be like 1220 two three three thousand fifty of them and now it was impossible for our ancestors to know what and how exactly is wrong with the intersex people uh, back in the medieval ages there wasn't a way of diagnosing dsds or you know assessing the sex or gender in any scientific way by i don't know dna analysis for example so the only thing that our ancestors knew about intersex people is that they were different and we already know how pre-christian slavs treated different people because we know how they treated people with supernumerary teeth for example of unibrow or some other visually different features so uh, our ancestors believed that such visually different people were inclined to become vampires after death and therefore possibly you know treated them with a little bit more respect or reverence when these people were alive uh, but one thing that's absolutely certain is that uh, you know our ancestors gave such people like super special and totally perfect funerals uh, but a part of funerals uh, the people who looked differently were actually functioning within the society as everyone else they did their very best to support themselves and the community and and that's it uh, while we on the topic of trans people or intersex people uh, i also want to mention a very interesting feature of uh, proto-slavic language and some modern slavic languages too because uh, you know that that i am a language nerd <laughs> and just love this stuff uh, and this feature is absolutely fascinating it is a form called dual which uh, and we know it for sure existed in the proto-slavic language alongside the singular and the plural form the dual form had its own declension which is the system of grammatical forms for nouns and adjectives and it could also be used in three different grammatical genders so in masculine feminine and neutral and uh, it was used to express duality or doubleness and uh, nothing else <laughs> so so the single form uh, was used to express that something is one 
uh, just like one in number. The plural was used to express multiplicity. So, you know, to talk about things that, or people that were three or more. And the dual was exclusively used to talk about things that, or people that were two. <laughs> and we actually don't know why our ancestors needed to be so specific. I mean, you know, the, the modern Slavic languages tend to be super specific, but still most of them have only singular and plural forms, and that's enough. Um, I mean, there are remnants of the dual form in modern Slavic languages, but not in all of them. Uh, still, for some reason, our ancestors felt that you know it's important to express the state of doubleness in a clean uh, understandable and unequivocal way and it, it's actually not sure why I mean you know it could be that they just were that specific maybe there was an element of their tradition or religion or culture than that generated the need of being able to state doubleness or you know mind you it's just my musings uh, maybe the, the, this grammatical form was used to describe people and things that, you know, were affected by doubleness, for example, by the power of Zmi, uh, the rainbow. It is a bit of a mystery, huh? I just, I love that about Slavic culture. It's just like the deeper you go, the more questions you have. And, and it's awesome. It's, it's just a bit sad though that the modern Slavic native faith seems to be losing and sometimes even willingly losing the complexity of the culture of our ancestors. Sometimes, especially when you read or listen to the more traditional <laughs> Rodnovers, it's just so bloody boring. You, you have to pray and you have to have an altar and you have to have a wife and you know children and facial hair and white embroidered shirt and you know make this sacrifice and not that sacrifice and you know you have to pray to Perun and it always makes me laugh a bit all this boring stuff that is supposedly so traditional and you know based on how our ancestors did it uh, because really how our ancestors did it was in an absolutely crazy and psychopathic way i mean they like literally slaughtered animals as sacrifices to the slavic gods and had a guy called Jerza whose only job was to drink this animal's blood, <laughs> you know? They slaughtered Christians too. I don't actually know if they drank their blood or had a guy drink the blood or not. You know, they buried, miscarried fetuses under the houses as protection. They, they buried, buried animals too under the houses for protection. Uh, they killed children as a way of family planning and if they worried if they were worried that someone will turn into a vampire then after this person died they would like mutilate this person corpse <laughs> pierce with, pierce it with sticks and you know cover in iron nails and cut the head off and put it the head in between the legs i mean really crazy stuff 
uh, and we know that our ancestors did all of this for sure, but somehow the traditional Rodnovers don't seem to be willing to do this stuff, I guess, you know, because it's illegal, but they also don't want to do the not, not illegal stuff. So, for example, the traditional Rodnovers, when they find themselves a wife, there isn't a single Rodnover groom who is willing to present his future bride with a wedding gift. Although we know this is how marriages were going down among pre-Christian Slavs. Also, uh, after they get married, they are not really always interested in fulfilling the traditional role of a Slavic husband, which is to protect and provide for the family. They, these traditional Rodnovers, they don't want homosexual couples to get married, claiming that the purpose of Slavic marriage is like was, was the children, which actually is true. However, when a heterosexual couple wants to get married, not one, not a single one Żerca is bothered about checking if the couple is actually fertile or if the couple is planning to have children. So, you know, this traditional take on Slavic native faith, to me, looks suspiciously similar uh, than, like, you know, to the Christian norms and it's just really far away from the soul of the Slavic tradition. And this is why it's so boring, in my opinion. <laughs> but the non-traditional followers of Slavic native faith don't always have it all figured out too. Because although they don't support the Judeo-Christian influences of the tradi traditional Rodnovers, they, you know, they contaminate the Slavic culture with other pagan influences. And you know, Slavic native faith is a pagan faith, but it does not mean that any pagan stuff fits into it. For example, the not traditional Slavic pagans will explain the presence of non-normative people in the Slavic culture by giving examples or sometimes literally applying examples from Hindu tradition or Polynesian tradition or even from Native American tradition. And I am absolutely not questioning that there is such a thing like, you know, Hindu Hydra caste or, you know, Native American two-spirit person, but none of these can be applied to Slavic native faith because in case you didn't notice, Slavic native faith is not Hinduism, is not Native American either. It's Slavic. And also there is a problem with the nature of Slavic languages too, uh, because as it seems, more and more non-Slavic speakers start to pra practice Slavic native faith. And it's absolutely fine, but not knowing a language of the culture you want to follow does not give you right to reject the sheer reality, reality of this language. And the reality of Slavic languages is such that it is not possible to talk about anything in a non-genderized way. 
And that means that if one wants to say I am non-binary in a Slavic language, the adjective non-binary, as well as any pronouns relating to it, they have to be used in a masculine or feminine form. There's just no other way around it, which, as I'm told, is fine for some non-binary people, but for some, apparently, is not acceptable. And those for whom it is not acceptable actually get offended and shout at Slavic people for being transphobic. Like, really? You want to follow a certain tradition, a tradition that has been passed via language, via oral tradition, through generations of native speakers, and you reject the language, so the very core of this tradition you want to follow, because it's not as you want it to be. Like, really? So for those non-binary Rodnovers that have no problem uh, with using genderized pronouns, Slavic languages can actually absolutely accommodate your needs. But those who require strictly genderless language, I'm afraid you will just have to stop getting offended and start contributing to the community like every single Slav has always been required to contribute. You could start with reconstructing the dual grammatical form in a way that is usable and can be used to describe you, for example. And that is all I wanted to say today. It was bloody long, wasn't it? I've said some things along the way that I'm not particularly proud of, and I will try to edit most of them out. Uh, but, uh, you know, by nature I'm quite lazy, and the post-production is a bitch. And also, I seem to have less and less time recently, so if I leave something that doesn't sound like I'm very smart, please don't hold it against me. Uh, there's also might be some cats and dogs in the background running around. Uh, yeah, I do my best to edit them out. Uh, as always, I would like to encourage you to get in touch and stay in touch. It is always nice to hear from you. You can get in touch via VTS website, uh, Facebook, Instagram, or you know, on YouTube. And I will link all of the contact details on the, in the notes for this episode. So if there is anything you want to say, ask, or you know, let us know, just get in touch and get it off your chest. Uh, and for now, take care, be yourself while not hurting others, and uh, suave.